across my entire career, I have prioritized relationships and being mentored and mentoring because mentoring teaches you a tremendous amount. And so I don't make really big decisions without talking to friends, colleagues, people who've been really instrumental in helping, giving me guidance. And I'll tell you, I'm super fortunate, incredibly fortunate to have a list of mentors that, you know, these are people who are just incredibly life-changing for me, whose advice I've used so many times. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. We interview Mary Langoski, a CEO of Solera Health, the premier value-based omnicondition management platform. But as this airs, we are thrilled to find out that Mary will be moving to chairman of the Solera Board of Directors and assuming the role of Executive Vice President and President of U.S. Healthcare at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Her expertise in strategy and policy in both the private and public healthcare sectors continues to shine brightly. As a former key strategist at CVS Health, Mary has been a pivotal force in marrying technology with healthcare, redefining our approach to wellness and chronic disease management. Her journey from a small Minnesota town to leading roles in healthcare policy and corporate strategy, and now to a significant leadership position at Walgreens Food Alliance, speaks volume about her resilience, foresight, and ability to lead in complex environments. Mary's significant contribution to the evolution of CVS Health and the foundational work for the Aetna ecosystem showcase her adeptness in navigating and leading through transformative changes. Her deep insights in policy, technology, and patient needs enable us to explore the multifaceted world of digital health, strategic partnership, and adaptive leadership. Get ready to be enlightened by Mary Langowski's unique perspective on the future of healthcare and leadership. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to have you. I've been hearing a lot about your work, and it's so nice to finally to have you here and share your journey with our listener here. I always like to start with my guest's journey, because I think that's always really interests me, and I think many people would like to hear. You have quite an interesting story. You've been in healthcare for a while, but I thought you touch on so many different aspects of healthcare. If you can tell us how do you get interested in healthcare and how, why do you stay in healthcare and to do what you are doing now? Yeah, I'm happy to go back just a few years and give you some color on that. I grew up in a really small town in Minnesota. There were not a tremendous amount of jobs and there wasn't all that much to do. And I started to get interested in healthcare really, really early on. And if you look at my career trajectory, I think going back to how I grew up and the fact that when I started to get interested in healthcare, I started to kind of hang around the local hospital and volunteered until they finally kind of were like, okay, fine, we have to give this person a job eventually. Uh, and so once I got, I got a job where they actually paid me to be there instead of me just lurking around. But what I found was, you know, it was a really interesting place to be. 
there were so many pressures going on. It was sometimes a very exciting place to be, and there was always something I can learn in that environment. And because we were in a rural area, there was a ton of pressure on that hospital to keep its doors open, to staff it, you name it. And so that became very interesting to me to kind of see. And of course, you know, you were telling me a story before we started about the high schooler who listened to the podcast. And I just like that high schooler thought, okay, I'm interested in healthcare. I want to be a doctor because that's all I knew. And of course, that's not what happened. But the other kind of wacky thing about you know, these things in our childhood that shape us, we were one of a handful of schools. This is when Apple was pretty brand new. And we were an Apple IIe school. And so that meant Apple donated computers to us. And so we were really early adopters with technology in the middle of Minnesota in this tiny town. And it was an amazing life-changing experience. So I was an early adopter of a lot of of technology and really interested in it. And so there was sort of the interest in the human side of healthcare. And I thought I was going to go into medicine. And then there's this interest in, you know, how does technology fit into all of this because of that exposure I had as a kid. And then you mix that with, you know, I had parents, I was fortunate enough to have parents who said, you know, don't marry a doctor, be a doctor, don't marry a lawyer, be a lawyer, (laughs) go to school, go get educated. And so they kind of instilled that drive in us that I think helped me become an entrepreneur later. So you end up being the lawyer. Being the lawyer (laughs) is a lot easier than being the doctor. (laughs) So you were doing something also in the policy side, and now you're running, I mean, how does that inform, like, what is that like working in the policy side? Yeah, so I, if I have my own eras in my career, they're just not nearly as exciting as Taylor Swift's. But I started off with, you know, the whole hospital experience. But I then went after college to work for self-insured employers back in the state of Iowa. And from there went into state government learn the policy world at the state level. Again, a different set of pressures, you know, public health, Medicaid, very different set of rules and things going on, pressures that are are going on at the local level. And then interestingly, at the time, I worked a lot on mental health and substance abuse parity, which I, you know, that many years ago, I would never have believed that all the money that's pouring into mental health now would have ever happened because there was none of it back then. So um, really Mm -hmm. neat to see some of the things that we've actually made progress on over the last couple of decades. But from there, I went into federal government. I worked for Senator Harkin, who was a dear mentor to me and really changed the trajectory of my life, as did his wife, Ruth. We are amazing people. And then I consulted. And so I had this government experience and learned policy. When you learn public policy, you tend to learn how the money flows in healthcare. And it's a really good base to spend some time in that environment. So you really understand Medicare and Medicaid. You understand how laws are set. But you also, if you bring an entrepreneurial mindset to that, you kind of, you can learn how do I open markets by partnering with the government sector to fix something or to do something for good. So my years of consulting focused on, you know, management consulting in the healthcare space, but also this notion of how do I change something in the government sector in order to, you know, crack open a market or improve something to, you know, fix an issue in healthcare or to do something positive in healthcare. 
And from there, I really wanted to operate and lead. And I went into CVS, was their chief strategy officer and executive vice president there and helped that transition as they were thinking about, you know, how do we become more than pharmacy and PBM and really take advantage of, you know, the fact that there's such consumer loyalty in retail? How do we become more healthcare? And then, of course, now I landed at Solera and I'm, I'm running Solera. So all these things have a really strange way of coming together in a person's career. I think that the thing about mine that if you've got entrepreneurs who listen to this or younger people who listen to this, there is nothing normal about my trajectory and nothing really traditional about my trajectory. Most people feel like they've got to do things a certain way in a certain order or work their way up in a certain company. I mean, I certainly said when I was in law school, I said, I will never set foot in a law firm. And I have three law firms on my resume. (laughs) When the law firms came to our law school to do interviews, I said, I'm not going to do any interviews with them. I have zero intention of ever working in a law firm. And I, I, oddly, I ended up taking my experience in healthcare and building my own healthcare consulting business. And then I went into these firms and built management and legal consulting businesses inside these firms. And so I'd I'd say to all of your younger people, I think if you have, you know, the drive and the intellectual curiosity, you can kind of do it different ways and you can get there Mm -hmm. in different ways. Just make sure you're learning all along the way and that you've got really good mentors all along the way. Yeah, I think that's nowadays, especially with this new generation, there's so many technology with the GNAI and somebody always says like, what do you want to study? And what you think that you're going to be five years from now might not even exist anymore or can be replaced. So I think having that mindset is so important. I want to ask you a little bit more because I'm curious, like being a policy advisor for a senator, what is that like? What is the role? Because, you know, we hear so many things, what's going on in the Congress now. And just you wonder, like, mm-hmm. it seems like they fight a lot all the time, but I'm sure there's a lot of work <laughs> behind it. Oh my God. It, is a total, it is a riot. It is so much fun. I worked for just the most lovely activist senator who also, while being a real activist, was, I mean, he changed so many lives with the things that he did. He was instrumental in the Americans with Disabilities Act. He was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee that funded all healthcare programs. So he really, he did so much to influence public health through CDC, NIH, um, big believer in really cutting edge science. So tremendous respect for him and just I mean, so what's it like to work for somebody that makes that much difference and change in people's lives? It's an amazing and kind of daunting experience for a kid who comes, you know, from the middle of nowhere who didn't think she would even live in Washington, D.C., let alone get to set foot in the Senate and ride the train back and forth to the Senate floor with the senator and tell the senator what he's going to say on the floor of the Senate. (laughs) So that's what it's like to work for them. It's very busy. It's demanding. But you're working with peers that are so smart and so devoted. And the truth is the staff work really, really well together. We were always working across the aisle, always compromising on things. Senator Harkin was great at making deals. And so it just what you see on TV, you know, I don't know. It's been a long time. It's certainly changed since I was up there. But it was incredibly collaborative, incredibly collegial, and the most 
intellectually interesting thing I've probably ever had exposure to is the fastest way to learn. And the wonderful thing is when you're up there and you're in these jobs, you really want to take advantage of how much access you have to people who can teach you. And so Mm -hmm. that's where you mentioned social media and how plugged in everybody is these days. The thing about a job like that is you want to meet as many people as possible because they are all going to be your peers in healthcare for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. There are so many people who I worked with night and day, just, you know, you work a million hours up there who, you know, ran things in the last several administrations. These are people that went on to work for presidents and went into companies. So you run into them for the rest of your life. So you really want to make real relationships with people, take advantage of the learning opportunity to learn from, you know, such smart, devoted people. And I just... If anybody considers going in and working in the Senate, I say go for it. It's just a wonderful learning experience. And Washington, D.C. is a pretty cool place to live, too. Yes, it's not a terrible place to be. It's a great city. It's a great city. So from that, you mentioned when you're working in a policy site, you understand where the money flow. Maybe Mm -hmm. you can share with us a little bit because healthcare money flows can be very, I mean, the subject itself can take more than an hour. And our podcast is only 30 minutes. So in a high level. Yeah. I mean, it's when I went from state government to federal government, I knew more about, you know, state government issues. And so I handled the Medicare portfolio for Senator Harkin. And it was, I had to learn very quickly the ins and outs of Medicare reimbursement. And that becomes, when I was up there, we ended up, that was when the Medicare Part D bill passed that gave Part D prescription drug coverage under the Medicare program. And so that very large piece of healthcare legislation not only had the Part D drug benefit in it, but it had tons of stuff hanging from that piece of legislation. So to learn how to actually get something done in a really tough, very highly matrixed environment, that's a learning you can take into any company after that. To learn how programs are made, you know, legislated and then subsequently regulated and how that all happens to know that process is really critical because any company in healthcare is going to be, you know, interfacing with regulated parts of the system. So it really can help you understand as an entrepreneur or someone starting a business in the space, whether you're going to be able to get something done or not so that you understand, okay, these are the barriers I've got to deal with. These are the regulatory barriers. This is, you know, what can realistically happen and what isn't realistic when it comes to legislation. So it gives you that sense of sort of, it reveals the rules of the game in a way that most people don't have the opportunity to really understand the ins and outs of that. You know, it's mysterious, I think, to the average person when they hear about a bill being introduced. Folks don't know is that bill going to pass or not, right? And so it kind of exposes the rules of the game to you when you work in that environment so that you understand, oh, this will never happen. Nobody is going to support that. Mm-hmm. It's just for press purposes versus, oh, this is very likely to happen and I need to adjust my business around it or I need to account for this risk in my business or this is great. I'm going to go take advantage of this opportunity because my TAM is going to be way bigger now because this change happened in, you know, in policy or in reimbursement. So it gives you that sense of like just how it all works. And 
for better or for worse, how it works on the government side starts to infiltrate the commercial side. So it's good to have that foundation. So is it something that you can share with us, like some framework to kind of see what <laughs> bill may pass and what bill may not pass or just for press purposes? No, it's so it's it, you to know the answer to that you have to know, is it a realistic policy in the first place? What's the level of support for that policy proposal? Is it what's the makeup of Congress, right? <laughs> is there not just in each chamber, but both of them together? Can it get through both chambers? So there's there's so many components to the answer to that question. And then there, are you in a political year? Is there a cost to the legislation? All of those things impact whether something will happen or not, whether it'll get through or not. And it's a very complex set of variables. That's why so few bills actually are must-pass bills at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. So you have this big, giant funnel with lots and lots of inputs at the top and very few things coming out the bottom because of that. And that's how our system was built. And that's probably okay. Mm -hmm. And so... If that's the case, not everybody have your experience. Not everybody can afford to hire somebody who has a lot of that experience. Do you think it's too late when you wait? It's like, oh, that bill is passed and let me see what I can do. No, it's not too late because there's a regulatory process with it. So if there's a, I mean, our company, Solera, started in the midst of a real regulatory opportunity in the diabetes prevention program, which was a program that it's actually a great example that I didn't even think of bringing to this, but NIH tested the diabetes prevention program in groups of people and said, this is a really successful way to prevent diabetes. If you get people in group learning environments and you go through certain steps of the program. I actually worked with the Diabetes Association, Nova Nordisk and several others and worked with CMS and worked with others in the healthcare industry who are very well known, who are instrumental, and I won't name names, instrumental in getting coverage for the DPP program. And my founder, Brenda Schmidt, who founded Slara, started this company in the midst of all of that and took advantage of kind of a new opening in the market. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to move really quickly and understand what the legislators and regulators are doing, you see an opportunity there. There is usually a good amount of, if you've got the drive and the discipline and you can move quickly and get capital, there's a great way to take advantage of those opportunities that you see. You're not too far behind. Mm -hmm. Well, which is maybe is a good segue to tell us a little bit more about Solera Health. I think you mentioned a little bit of it and what's the impact that Solera is trying to achieve and also where they are at now. Yeah. Yeah. So Solera is, we built on that history, right? So my founder really focused on the diabetes prevention program, knowing that she wanted to make this a platform eventually that covered a lot of condition issues across the chronic condition spectrum. And so at our core, what we do is we select and curate networks of the highest performing, what we consider to be the highest performing vendors out there across a range of condition categories. So diabetes management, weight management, tobacco cessation, mental health, women's health, digestive health, you name it. We match consumers to their best fit. It's often misunderstood that in the digital health space, one size does not fit all. You've got different vendors who are targeting different parts of the disease spectrum and condition spectrum and at different acuity levels. You also have different models of engagement. And so if a person's going to be successful, 
they're going to be most successful if they're matched based on their learning style and based on their clinical need. And so we get them to the right place. And that saves, of course, lots of money because then they're more successful in getting to their outcomes. And we handle all of this for payers and employers through our platform. So that makes it really easy for either a benefits buyer or a payer to have what I always say is kind of air traffic control over their chronic condition management across all of those vendors. So instead of that buyer having to you know, screen every point solution in the market and decide what's good and what's bad, we're mm-hmm. taking all that work off of them, doing all of the contracts, and then providing reporting so they can really take a step up and back and say, okay, this is working for my population, or there's an issue over here, I need to change somebody out, or I really want to, you know, crank up on engagement over here with with mental health because we're going to be in a really tough time over the next year, whatever it might be. And so it enables them to manage the population better. But we do all of this, and this goes back to our reimbursement conversation, we do all of this with a value-based payment structure, an accountable payment structure. So we're on a pay-for-outcomes payment structure. It's very different than anybody else in digital health because we are really believers that you got to bring value-based payment, just like it's been brought to the rest of the healthcare system. And of course, we've got a long way to go there, but we believe it's got to be in digital health as well. And that that will fundamentally make digital health a more sustainable and integrated part of the healthcare system. So that's what we're doing. We're doing it across a lot of conditions and it's loads and loads of fun. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And you mentioned a little bit about value-based. Can you tell us more about what's that mean? Like when you yeah. say in the digital health that in order to be driving, you do need to have this. Yeah. So most of the digital health vendors in market today are charging per member per month or per engaged member per month. And sometimes they are evaluated based on how a cohort or a population of people do and whether they move, you know, sometimes one person in a cohort can get to an outcome and an employer might pay for the entire cohort. We break apart that payment system and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that way of doing it. It's just in our payment system, there is nowhere to hide. You're going to be paid on engagement and outcomes at the end of the day and in held accountable to engagement and outcomes. And so that's how we set up the structure and we file claims to the insurer and pay our provider partners, our vendor partners, based on those achievements and those results. So the the interesting thing is we know down to the person level if somebody moved through to the right outcome. So we know if Mrs. Jones moved through her musculoskeletal program or not. And the employer and the payer are not going to pay for Mrs. Jones if she did not move through those key milestones that lead to a clinical outcome. So it's very much a pay-for-outcomes payment model. And Payers absolutely love that and employers love that because they're starting to feel like, you know, the economy's soft, they're feeling a lot of pressure, and they want to drive more accountability. Everybody knows that digital health is here to stay, 
but that it's moving through to a more mature phase, you know, so that the consumer can have a really elegant experience when they're engaging with the offerings that an employer is giving them. And it's important that we demystify and make it really easy for the consumer to keep themselves healthy and to engage in these programs where they'll be successful. But the payment mechanism has to be there as well so that there's accountability. So that's what we're doing. And that's what the platform does. We sit behind that entire structure and create a nice experience for the consumer. We drive more volume and make it easier for point solutions to contract with and engage with payers. And then, of course, on the payer and employer side, we're streamlining and saving them a ton of money, not just from the clinical outcomes, but you can save an employer or a payer anywhere from $1 million to $5 million per point solution vendor they don't actually need to contract with mm-hmm. because of all of the IT integrations and all the headaches associated with doing that. So the platform, our technology platform itself, is just creating a lot of value that can be outsourced by the payer and employers. So they don't have to deal with that headache. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's so interesting because sometimes, oftentimes, when you see startup or company, they focus on, for the good reason, they need to focus on something that's more a uh, narrower scope. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes the payers say like, you know, how many point of solution do I need to have and to work with? I think yours, this platform is answering that problem that they're facing. It's true. And it's really hard for people to imagine sometimes that they can pay a lot less and we end up being a lot less than they pay today for these individual contracts. They get a lot more and they get more choices because we're giving them a network, Mm -hmm. but they're paying less for it. And sometimes it's hard for them to get their head around that at first. Like, how, How can that possibly be true? And it's also, you know, we're trying to teach the market that when you engage with, and there's so many innovative, great point solutions out there that have done, I mean, we love our partners. They are amazing. They are doing amazing work. We enable them to really put their money into their care model to have the best care model possible instead of worrying about some of the components that we handle for them. And we love working with our point solution partners, but they don't serve everybody across the population quite often. Some of them do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even with, I was just out at the Headspace event last week speaking with Russ and Paul Markovich about our partnership at Blue Shield of California. And, you know, we partner with Headspace both in their low acuity and the meditation side, as well as the cognitive behavioral therapy side. And we chose them individually. When we looked at the market, we chose them individually for those two segments. They won when we did our market scan for the medium and high acuity and the lower acuity levels. And what we see is not everybody needs, like over half of the people do not need that higher acuity level. And they'll their symptoms will resolve if you get them into the lower acuity option. We see that with musculoskeletal all the time. A lot of people need a lower acuity you know, sometimes free stretching app, something that is a lot cheaper than a really more expensive program. So, you know, that makes a big difference and the person is happier because they're in the right program for them. It's Mm -hmm. just, we're still educating the market that one size doesn't fit all with, you know, these vendors. So when you do one contract with one vendor, you're probably only covering a small segment Mm -hmm. of your population. And that's certainly true with women's health. 
And it's amazing that we're finally focusing on women's health <laughs> as much as we are. And it's amazing how long it we went without focusing on it. But, you know, one vendor typically does not cover the huge spectrum of issues there because women's health is not a condition in the first place. Mm-hmm. It is not one single condition. It is, you know, obviously it is family planning and pregnancy and all and maternity and all of those issues is pelvic floor therapy. It's menopause. It's so many different things, mental health. Right. So we're excited because we put together a women's health network that covers the range of end to end issues. Mm-hmm. And we're delivering that instead of an employer having to just pick one vendor and serve one part of their population. And how do you get your vendors? Do they come to you, apply to you? And what's that? process? Yeah, it's a great question. We are continuously, it's a very dynamic curation process. So we are continuously looking at the market. We're also working with our customers who are always looking at the market so that we, you know, are always aware of what's out there. But then we take a very deep clinical scrub. We are looking at the clinical literature. We're looking deeply at what the care model looks like. We're looking at their engagement model. We're looking at the fact, can they scale nationally? Are they well-funded and capitalized, you know, in the last couple of years? And I think in the next year, you'll see some organizations merge, go away. And so we want to make sure that we, as that trusted partner to the buyer, are helping create stability for their members. So we're taking a very deep look across the industry and then we're going deep with the folks that we select so that at the end of the day, we can put that stamp of approval on them. But then it's not done at that point. I mean, again, Russ and I talked at his Headspace event last week about this. We're in the trenches together. We're continuously talking. We're continuously fixing things together and trying to make the results better. And so once we're working together, there's just a lot of partnership that happens after that to, you know, to, on behalf of patients. And those are the kind of partners we pick, the ones who really want to be in it with us trying to do good. Mm-hmm. So coming from the consumer side, if I were say I'm under Blue Shield, then I can have access to your platform. And how easy is it for me to navigate or how does it work that the provider tell me like, here, pick this one? Yep. That's each plan does it a little bit differently. With Blue Shield of California, for example, they've got a front door that's called Wellvolution. So it's a separately branded place where you can go and we are powering Wellvolution. So Wellvolution is Solera. We are behind that. You won't see a lot of our brand because we white label behind the payer and employer across the industry. And so that looks different in different places with different partners of ours. But in that case of California, it's a Wellvolution brand and they've got all sorts of stuff they're offering to BSC members. And so in a way that Solera is behind the scene for the Blue Shields offering in that space. Okay. Yeah, our philosophy is the consumer does not want or desire or need one more brand to sort through. <laughs> it's just, it's too much. And we feel like our best and highest role is to strengthen the relationship between that consumer and whatever they're trying to get to. Is it, you know, one of the women's health vendors? Is it Headspace? That is, it's more important for us to be behind the scenes, getting them where they need to be mm-hmm. and strengthening that relationship with the payer employer than introducing a new confusing brand. And so one of the things that is a good segue to ask you more on your personal side, with all the journey that you have, and now you're running Solera in 
what are the things that you learned from your past that was helpful when you were running Solera? And is there new, what kind of new learning that you kind of surprised you that, because I wish I knew it earlier? <laughs> That's a great question. I think certainly at Solera, but across my entire career, I have prioritized relationships and being mentored and mentoring because mentoring teaches you a tremendous amount. And so I don't make really big decisions without talking to friends, colleagues, people who've been really instrumental in helping, giving me guidance. And I'll tell you, I'm super fortunate, incredibly fortunate to have a list of mentors that, you know, these are people who are just incredibly life-changing for me, whose advice I've used so many times. I mean, I told you about my work with the Harkins, but also, you know, I worked and did the consulting business that I did for years with former Senator Daschle. And there are many more mentors like that in the business world as well, who are just great friends and great guides along the way. So I think the first thing is just knowing you're not going to know everything and knowing that you you shouldn't know everything and using the efficiency of the years and years of experience of many, many other smart people. And I think that comes a little bit later. I was given that advice very early on by a mentor who really helped me prioritize that. A lot of people don't come to that until later because they don't want to admit they don't know. But if there are young entrepreneurs out there who want to start something, it is a common thing I see that they put their head down, work super hard, and then don't want to admit failure or don't want to invite in, you know, that kind of counsel because they don't want people to doubt that they can do that. And so I think that that is something to learn as early as possible. I still use that even though I feel way more grounded in what I'm doing now than I did 20 years ago, but I still use that approach to everything I do. And then mentoring other people is just, at this point, that is kind of what is so gratifying in these roles. We want to be successful at Slero. We are successful. We're growing. We're, we're a company that's fortunate enough to have great product market fit. The market needs us right now. That's a great place to be. But what is really gratifying is helping people grow their careers, helping push people into, you know, things they didn't know they could do so that they can have that same interesting and neat experience. And so those are things that I learned early on that I just use all the time, Mm -hmm. that I use every day and probably wouldn't have survived without all my mentors along the way. You mentioned that you're fortunate uh, having a great mentors, but I'm sure you also have that I don't want to say skill sounds so intentional. You're trying to build that really. I mean, it's also your ability to build that relationship to get that good mentorship. I mean, is there like a, a framework or skills or like how do you build that relationship? I think that's what, you know, because what we do here at the Rosemary, we try to connect people with their potential, their mentors. And we always, I always try to encourage like build that relationship with that mentors and when I said that, you know, different people might interpret it differently. What does that mean, building relationship? And what do you, does it mean to you, building relationship and keep that relationship? Oh, I'm glad you said and keep and maintain that relationship. Oh, my gosh. 
That is such a good question. I've gotten it before from friends who struggle to build a network. And I first, I want to say, don't assume that it came easy or I'm naturally inclined to do that. Because that is the assumption that like, oh, well, you're good at networking. No, it's a lot of uncomfortable putting yourself out there and asking for help. And some people might not have the time for you and they might say no. I have been rejected by more people and ignored by many, many more people than the list of mentors I have. And so it's getting a little bit fearless and not taking it too personally and putting yourself out there. I mean, putting yourself out there and asking for help. And then I think, you know, I <laughs> we weren't supposed, we're not supposed to name names, but yesterday I sat at lunch with Senator Daschle. It answers the other part of your question about maintaining relationships. And he was describing someone who had come in and asked him for advice. And this is a person who was the majority leader of the United States Senate and in the United States Senate for a million years. This is somebody who is incredibly successful. And he said, you know, it's flattering when someone comes and asks you for advice. And I started laughing because (laughs) I mean, he gets asked for advice all the time. But that I think is when you're feeling really shy about that kind of outreach, understand that a lot of people also get something from that encounter and really enjoy particularly really successful people who at this point in their life really thrive on helping other people be successful. And so some might say no, some may not have time, the time might not be right, but you'll find some who really want that experience just as badly as you want to be mentored and then maintain. Don't be transactional about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the worst thing is to kind of, okay, well, I used this encounter right now. You made a phone call for me and then there's no nurturing of that relationship. Don't expect to get anything else from that person later on if you don't nurture and maintain that relationship. And what does that look like? Having lunch every once in a while, the good fortune here is that you get really dear friends out of it. I mean, this is not obligatory maintenance. This is, you know, in my case, these are people who fill me up and fulfill me and give me life and energy. And when things are rough at work or you're encountering all these challenges that you had asked about before, those are the people you go to who make you believe that you can do it and who kind of give you the life force you need to get through the moments in your life. And maintaining it is what it's all about. So that can be calls, that can be emails, that can be updates. Hey, that can, you know, here's how I'm doing. Thank you for what you did for me. But Mm -hmm. definitely maintain it because the moment it feels transactional, it's not a relationship. Right. And also when it feels transactional, at times when you need help, sometimes make it even harder for you to reach out because you feel you don't really have that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. I know we are way over our time. Um, last question, though. Can oh, I ask one last question? Sure, sure. What is the, I think you've probably covered this. The best advice, but I, I, should, I can ask you that again. The best advice and the worst advice that you got. You know, <laughs> I've just had a lot of good advice from my mentors. And so it's hard to sort through what the best advice is other than the gist of the best advice has always been to kind of move forward fearlessly and I'm going to cheat and having people who really remind you to stay grounded in your values 
meaning what is going to give you fulfillment? What does fulfillment look like to you? And make sure you're continuing to structure your life and your career and your relationships around those values. And if you do that, then the rest sort of falls into place. And I'm, I don't know that I've had bad advice from them. There's <laughs> advice I haven't followed, but there's not terrible advice. <laughs> okay. That's very like good. I'm probably giving people some bad advice, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think advice, it's uh, also very personal in a way because your situation different yeah. when it was given to you for different other people. So I think you need to know what you need be honest with yourself too because that helps to know what you need as well I think well and you got to be vulnerable with the people who are giving you advice so that to your point so that it matches who you are and what you need and it's you know appropriate for where you are in your life and that's why it's so critical to have those relationships yeah those relationships will save you when you need it yeah that's great well thank you thanks so much for your time thanks I hope to meet you face to face soon yeah that'd be great Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms. This domain, in this domain.